other thing to take note of, maybe you haven't even noticed it, but because of some of your generosity, we were able to bless the school and put in these blinds. They didn't have um, nice looking ones, so we put those in. So if it's too bright on that side, you guys are welcome to stand up and tweak those down. But uh, just thanks so much. Ah. Well, there we go. We don't have to put it up. You can just make it look styling on the lying flat there. That's okay. Often when those sorts of things happen, it's sometimes the Lord trying to get your attention. Um, so there we go. He's the hope of the world. We needed a double look at that. Thank you, Lynn. Amazing work there. Um, but thank you for your generosity. You know, there's three key th things that we uh, support as a church that I'll share quickly. Uh, one of them is church planting in places where the good news of Jesus has never reached. And we do that through um, a, a group uh, that's based in the States, which is amazing. Um, and you can follow them if you search for David Platt or if you search for uh, his group, you'll see that there. We support Open Doors, which is the persecuted church. Uh, so it's, it's people who are Christ followers in different parts of the world, but are under serious attack for their faith. And Open Doors, amazing organization. We support A29, uh, which is an incredible human trafficking group as well. So there's so much that your generosity is going towards, and I just want to thank you for that. So today we're starting a new series, which we're going to track with through the term, and it's called Foundations. And it ties in quite well with people who are exploring faith through the Alpha course, which I'll, I'll talk to you about the end. Um, but we're going to go on this journey about the key things we believe at Hope Church about the Christian faith. And these are going to be topics uh, to help you explore faith, to understand faith, to go deeper in your faith. They will be something that you can stand on when you face doubt in your faith, which is a real thing that many of us do face. When you're asked about the hope that you believe in, when you're asked about Jesus, these will give you real rock solid um, ways to speak into that and will be an anchor during the trials of your life. And so we're going to look at what is the scripture, prayer, gifts of the Holy Spirit, money, and what role does that play, service, uh, our community, uh, the nation that we live in. And today I want to look at a word that's vital, a word that's powerful, a word that divides in some ways, a word that we all need, and it's this word called truth. And so we're going to look at truth and how do we find it. And that's what we're going to explore today. And we live in a world where it's great to always be exploring, but never to find when it comes to truth. So it's great to explore on all levels. But you never should actually find that truth that you're looking for. Because why? You can easily say, I'm checking things out. I'm on a journey to finding faith. But when you cross the line and you say, but now I have found the truth, suddenly you're shunned. That's the world that we live in. So you're welcome to explore. You're welcome to have different perspectives, different relative truths. But the minute you cross a line and say, no, but I believe I've found the truth, that's the point that you become shunned. Because claiming to know the truth is not attractive in the society in which we live. Well, at least certain types of truth are not attractive to many. And there's a man called Pontius Pilate. Some of you might have heard of him, the governor um, at the time of Jesus's uh, execution, life, death, and, um, and uh, execution. And he was, um, he was questioning Jesus. Jesus had been arrested by the Jewish authorities. And Pilate, who was obviously Roman rule, he was sort of wondering why have these people arrested Christ, what's this all about? And so he started to question Jesus because he had to uh, oversee this. And so it says in uh, John uh, 18, verse 37, then Pilate said to him, Jesus, so you're a king, because this is what people had been accusing Jesus of being and what he had said of himself. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, 
And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I don't find anything wrong with this man, but he handed them over and, and, and Jesus ended up being executed. But Pilate had this nagging feeling, is there something that's true or something that isn't? And so his question to Jesus was just, what is truth? Is there actually something called truth? And you may be in that place here today. You might be in the place of saying, what is true and what isn't? This church or hope church that I've been invited to or the Christian faith, is it true? Is it not? Is it just a figment of people's imaginations? Is there absolute truth or does it depend on your upbringing or where you stand in life? And early on in his ministry, Jesus had spoken even more strongly about his role in truth. And this is what he said in John 14 verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we're going to explore this short statement of Jesus today. And this will apply to you whether you're exploring faith, whether you've known God for a long time. And so the first question you may have here today is, but don't all faiths ultimately lead to God? I know there's many who might have that question. Don't all faiths, there's really good people who are, diff, who are parts of different faiths, don't all faiths ultimately lead to the same thing? Another way of saying this would be, is Jesus a way to God or is he the way? Is he a way or is he the way? And it's important to note here that not all faiths even try to get to God. This is important for us to realize. For example, in Buddhism, the main goal if you follow Buddha is actually to lose your personal identity and get absorbed into this wonderful state of cosmic oneness. So in Buddhism, you're not even trying to find God. In some ways, you just mold into the universe, but your role is not to find God. Hinduism, as well as many other Eastern religions, have no, no objective of a personal relationship and they tend towards ultimate annihilation. So as a Hindu person, you don't, your goal is not to have a personal relationship with a living God. There's many gods, but actually the end result is annihilation. Life just ends for everyone and that's it. Islam is about paradise. And as you read the Quran, you actually don't really see much about a relationship with God at all, um, with the God um, that they follow. So Islam is about paradise. The Quran talks about fruit trees, virgins for men to have sex with, and crystal clear water but God is very absent. That's all that's spoken about in terms of the end goal of your faith if you are following Islam. And atheism, which is also faith, by the way, atheism is a faith, predominantly driven by evolutionary theory, denies that we're trying to find a God at all. So Christianity is the one that differs. It's God inviting us into a personal relationship with himself. So be aware that when the question is asked, don't all faiths lead to the same God, a very valid answer is that actually the majority of faiths aren't trying to get to God at all in the first place. But let's explore for now the Christian faith being a way or the way. Because you might ask the question, well, that's all fair and good, Craig, but how can Christianity claim to have a monopoly on the truth? How can Christians claim that they have the way to God? Surely that's arrogant. Surely that's rude, as well as stupid, to be honest, to think that you could know everything. And so I might have shared this, but my brother who lives in Sweden, he's a Christ follower there in Stockholm. Sweden now is at the place that if you have a conversation about faith and if people hear that you are a Christ follower or of any other faith, their instant response is like a, 
shame. Um, one, you must have come from a different country, but one day when you grow in intellect, then you will understand that there isn't a faith. But, but, but we're just so sorry. You know, and that is the perspective. Ross had these, my brothers had these conversations. The perspective is actually just, we just feel so sorry because you're not quite at the right intellect yet. Stupid, in other words. And some people may use an illustration. You might have heard this illustration or maybe a conversation along similar lines. And I've used a shortened explanation of it by Greg Kukul. And it's the parable of the elephant and the blind men. Has anyone heard the story before? The elephant and the blind men. Not many. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, it's a well-known story that resonates in a culture where diversity is valued and multiple perspectives are promoted. So this will be shared very often in conversational circles, philosophical conversations, where various different views are promoted. The story originated in India, but it's been used in Buddhist, Hindu, and Sufi contexts. The most common version in the West comes from a lady called Lillian Quigley, and she did a children's book of the same name. And these six blind men visit Raja's palace and they encounter this elephant. So you can imagine the picture. Um, I, I think there's a picture of the book up there somewhere. So the first blind man puts his hand uh, out his hand and he touches the side of the elephant, right? And he says, how smooth. An elephant must be like a wall. That's his comment. And the second blind man happens to put his hand out and touches the trunk of the elephant. And he says, how round. An elephant must be just like a snake. That's, that's what it must be like. The third blind man put out his hand and he touches the tusk of the elephant. And he just says, how sharp. I think an, an elephant must be a bit like a spear. That's what it must be. Hello. Ah, back. Rory, what a sound man. Amazing, Rory. Brilliant. So an elephant is like a spear. The fourth man put his hand out and he touches the leg of the elephant. So uh, he's not as tall as the others. Uh, and uh, he says, how tall an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand and he touched the ear of the elephant. And he just says, how wide an elephant is like a fan. I've had felt one of these at home. An elephant is like a fan. And the sixth man put out his hand and he happened to be by the tail of the elephant, which probably doesn't smell that good, but that's where he was. And he says, how thin. An elephant is just like a rope. An elephant is like a rope. And so they all have this argument, each blind man, and they're discussing about who, what this elephant is like, his own perception of the elephant. And now the Raja at the palace, he wakes up and he hears this commotion below him. And he looks out and he sees these blind men gathered around an elephant. And he calls out from the balcony, he says, the elephant is a big animal. Each man, each of you touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. And so enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind men reach an agreement. Each one of us knows only a part of what the elephant is like. To find out the whole truth, we must put all of the parts together. And so this story has been used in bringing across a perspective that all of us know a different part of the truth, but none of us know the whole truth. See, it sounds humble at first, but what you realize is that the only way that someone can stand and actually tell the story is if they believe that they're in the position of seeing the whole truth. So the only way you can tell the story if you're standing as the Raja and you can see these different perspectives, but you are the one who actually stands and sees all of truth. And so whilst it sounds humble on 
the outset, it's actually not at all. And so you might say, well, how can Christians claim to know the truth? I'm different. I think everyone has a part of the truth. But you see, the hypocrisy in that statement is that you're actually making an exclusive claim. You're saying that you see the whole picture and are inclusive of everyone else except for those who are exclusive in their belief just as you are. And so when we celebrate diversity and tolerance, we pretend to be humble. But in that, we're actually making a truth claim. And truth by its very nature is exclusive. And so all faith claims will all be exclusive. There are many faiths that also claim to be the only way to God as well. Very interesting. Islam would say it's the only way to paradise. Judaism would say it's the only way to God. Catholicism would say you have to follow certain belief sets for you to reach God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and more. So being considered the truth is not only a Christian belief. It's just interesting that most other faiths aren't held to blame for calling the truth usually the Christian faith. And this was Pilate's predicament. His predicament was, what is truth? Out of the different options, Jesus, you're presenting one, but what is truth? So Jesus may claim to be truth, but is there really one single truth? And so we get on to the next bit, which Jesus said, I'm the way, and he said, I'm the truth. So the question is, whether there's actually a spiritual power greater than us who can decide on truth or whether it's something that we come across and we evolve to. Listen to this brilliant comment from someone called David Belinsky. If you haven't heard of him, he's one of the world's leading physicists and he's not a Christ follower. So he's one of the main person at the people at the Discovery Institute. He's not a Christ follower at all. But he's been interviewed by many people, Ben Shapiro and others. And look at what he says. Amazing comments from someone who's not a Christ follower. He says, has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence, of God not being there? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? So has all of our science proved where the world has come from? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt dead on? So interesting from a leading physicist who is not a Christ follower at all. So whilst he isn't one, I love his honesty. And whilst he doesn't say that Jesus is the way to find truth, he is adamant that scientific thought does not disprove the Christian faith. I love it and I love his honesty. The other thing that we need to answer when we look at the truth is we need to find where did people get their sense of right and wrong? Where, do we, where does that come from? And does that come from evolutionary development? You see, each of us here in this room knows murder to be wrong. Sure, there'll be outliers, and that's why we have people who are willing to murder. But I would imagine if I did a survey now, I won't get you to put your hands up just in case there is an outlier in this room. But if I was to do a survey and say, how many of you believe that murder is right and is good? 
I would imagine that probably nobody puts their hands up. Maybe you'd say in a certain circumstance, maybe you'd be an outlier who says, well, I don't mind. I mean, life is life. But on the whole, the world believes that murder is wrong. On the whole, they do. Christian or not, we know that there's some moral fiber in society that we have. And this shows the dramatic difference between humans made in the image of God and animals. We could not have evolved to have moral thought. Impossible. We haven't seen it. Think of some lions and the impala. I might have shared the story, but you don't have. I mean, I haven't had a conversation with them. Maybe if there's people here who know animals better than me, but I haven't chatted to lions yet. And you don't just have these two female lions going, one going, that impala looks so juicy. I can't wait for a piece of that rump. It's going to be amazing. And you have the other one saying, but shame, you might hurt it. Like, we don't want to do that. Let's rather eat grass. Like, we know we've got protein, but let's get it from soya beans instead. The other one's like, no, let's just kill it. You know, they don't have that discussion. They're not worried about morality. They're not worried about correct thought processes at all. They don't face that. There's been someone who's created us with souls, spirits, and minds with that understanding. And so I believe that regardless of your faith position, there are things in this world we know to be true. Sure, we can argue that we can make it up, that it's just particles colliding in our brain, that it's not real. But I think we believe it is. Things like emotion. I don't think there's anyone in the world, Christian or not, who would, when they experience true elation, when they experience the deepest sorrow, would turn around and say, ah, it's just particles. It means nothing. I mean, I'm crying and I'm broken. It's just particles, though. It doesn't mean anything. We feel things. We feel things, and that can't have just come about. We also know things like gravity exists and is absolute. It affects all of us. Just because I decide that gravity is true or not, it won't change it. It won't change it. It is true. C.S. Lewis gives a great statement on our thought process of right and wrong. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and so unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Is there an absolute truth in the world? Is there a straight line? I believe there is. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. You might say, that's okay if you believe that, Craig, but... Maybe he is the way, maybe he is the truth, but what kind of life do I get if I follow him? I mean, do I even want to follow a God like this? And so is he a life amongst many, or is he the life? Is he the only way to fulfilling, purposeful, beyond the grave life? Is it really found in him? It makes sense that he's the way and the truth, but does the life he offers um, fulfill what I'm after? Because there's some that feel Christianity is a bit of a straitjacket. Kind of there's rules and regulations, you know, come to Christ, stop getting drunk, stop sleeping around, start giving your money. You know, there's all these sorts of things. People are like, that's a bit of a straitjacket, you know, obey the law, those sorts of things. Do I really need that in my life? How can you call that exhilarating? Well, I love doing the gorge swing at Victoria Falls. I love it and I hate it. But I, on the whole, I love it for, for the, sort of those three seconds. Anyone else done the gorge swing? Or at least bungee jumping? Hands up. Bungee jumping, hands up skydivers. A few brave ones put their hands up. Okay, brilliant. So for those, the rest of you who haven't done it, again I say, you're missing out on life. So take a drive to the falls, strap yourself up, take a jump off, doesn't matter how old or young you are, um, it's worth doing. So when we think of the gorge swing, there's a few things that make it exciting to me. Firstly, 
the person who is explaining it to me has gone before. They've done it multiple times. They know what they're talking about. They've experienced what I'm about to experience. Number one. Number two, when I think about it, there's equipment, harnesses, bungee cords, safety ropes. That's another reason to do the, bungee, uh, the gourd string rather than the bungee jump. The gourd string has a few safety ropes, but as we know from the lady who plunged to the bottom of the bungee and survived, quite famous as a result, there isn't as much safety when it comes to that. But either way, there's equipment on both, harnesses, bungee cords, safety ropes, to ensure that the jump is safe. So you can look, the person's explaining, saying, I've done this before, this is a great thing to do. At the same time, you're strapped in, you've got double harnesses, two of them. You've got one that goes to the main rope, one that goes to a safety rope. You've got double safety lines across the top. You kind of sit and go, sheesh, that's quite a lot of safety for me to do the jump. And as a result, when they say jump, there's this exhilarating excitement to do it because there's something to catch you in that exhilaration. I want to suggest that in Christ we experience one who has gone before, and one who, when he provides the safety rules for us to live exhilarating life, he knows that those rules and regulations are precisely the ones required to experience the kind of fulfilling life that we're all after. And if we're to chuck those safety rules, if we're to chuck that away, we miss out on the kind of thrill that he's actually called us to. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and during the last battle, well, um, the, the final book, we experience um, this amazing uh, little conversation that happens. The remaining few, the faithful, are near the stable. So you might read this. And King Tyrion, look at what he says. He says, it seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said Lord Diggory, its inside is somehow bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It was the first time she had spoken, and from the thrill in her voice, Tyrion now knew why. She was drinking everything in more deeply than the others. She had been too happy to speak. Lucy was talking about Jesus in the stable and the sense that the God of the universe stepped into our world. And I trust that today, and even if you've never thought of the Christian faith or you've kind of thought of it maybe being small, narrow, and tiny, a bit like maybe a, a stable, as you journey to Christ, you will find it bigger, wider, and more freeing than you can ever imagine. He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, and He invites each of us to go deeper today. Maybe before we pray, maybe some of you are still contemplating faith. Maybe it's your first time to church. Maybe you've been invited by your friend. And uh, there's a story. I've told a lot today, actually, more than usual. But there's a story of these two twins in the womb. And so these twins were having a conversation, as twins do. And they were talking. And uh, they, were, they, they kept hearing different sounds um, outside. Sometimes music. Sometimes, you know, uh, people talking or voices. So they heard. And the one twin turns to the other. And the twin says, I'm telling you, there's something more. There's more outside. There's more beyond this womb. And the other twin is like, I'm telling you, this is all that there is. This is it. Enjoy it. This is life. And the other is saying, but I, I sometimes hear sound. I hear music. It feels like we move around. I'm telling you, there's something else out there. And the other twin is like, no, this is ridiculous. This is it. This is life for us. And they have this continued conversation. 
And I think often for us, we can be one of those two twins. And we can have this conversation with ourselves or with friends. And the amazing reality of that whole birth process is that you and I have actually lived in two different realms already. Before we were born, but we were living, we lived and breathed through liquid. Think about that. Lived and breathed through liquid. There was no air that we breathed, but we lived. And the moment that we were born, we actually entered a new realm of living and breathing air. So it's actually not that strange that there's another spiritual realm that you and I can enter into, a God that we can engage with, because we've already lived in two. And so when you think of those two, keep exploring, keep listening, keep being the twin that's going, there's something more. And I know Jesus will show himself real to you. So I want to pray. You can stay seated. Um, that's okay, just stay seated. But I want us to pray together. And so you can close your eyes, you can keep them open if you want. It doesn't matter. Sometimes closing our eyes helps us to concentrate, drown out the world around us. But but maybe you're here and you're asking the same questions that Pontius Pilate asked, saying, Jesus, what is truth? There's many different ones. And, and, and Jesus' answer to him was to say that I am the king. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so today, maybe you've just felt God tugging on the strings of your heart. You felt this hasn't been an ordinary talk, not because of anything I've said, but you've just had a sense in your heart that something's happening. Maybe you felt a bit uncomfortable. Maybe your heart's raced a bit. Maybe you've gone, I've never really contemplated faith, but sitting here, there feels like there is a difference. And there is a difference because the king is here. And so for you, this might be the very first time that you can turn. You might not know everything. But you know enough because Jesus has said, I am the way to the Father. I'm the way to God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm true and I'm truth and you find it in me and I'm life now and beyond the grave. And so for you, for the very first time in your heart, you can just say, I believe that. Jesus, I believe you're the way. I believe you're the truth. I believe you're the heart. Would you change me? Would you make me one of yours? Would you make me a Christ follower? And in this moment, he'll do that. It says in Romans, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do that, he changes you instantly. So Lord Jesus, for people here, maybe in that place, would you give them the courage and the boldness to make that decision, best decision ever, most wonderful decision ever. And for the rest of us here, maybe we've known you for a long time. Father, I pray that we would be people who are so sold out on the truth that we don't let little bits of untruth find their way into our lives. I pray that as we look to you, the king, the way, the truth, and the life, we would see things in our lives that aren't part of the way and the truth, and we'd be able to put those aside, difficult things. We'd make life-transforming changes, hard changes as we pursue you. I pray that we'd be people who stand strong and confidently on who you are as truth. It's not immature, it's not stupid, it's not strange, it's very, very logical. It makes complete sense to believe that you are who you said you are. So I pray for each of us, you would ground us deeper as we start this course on, on foundations. Ground us deeper in what we stand on. Give us a confidence to stand going, I'm a Christ follower, I'm proud of it, I believe it, God's in my heart. 
And I'd love to invite you into the story. And so would you help us in that process? Your name we pray. Amen.